0: Welcome to Doctors at Work. My name is Matt Daniel, and this podcast is about doctors' careers. Today I'm interviewing Todd Otten, who's a family physician in the US. He's written a book called Ripple of Change. And in that book, he talks about how all of us can come together to change healthcare for the better. His big idea is that rather than expecting somebody else to fix healthcare, it is us that need to be fixing healthcare, each and every one of us. And if each and every one of us just did one or a few small little bits, then all of us coming together will create a massive movement, which means that healthcare will change for the better, for patients as well as for doctors. Hope that you find it useful. Welcome, Todd. Tell us about yourself. Uh,
1: Very well. Thanks much for having me. Uh, My name is Todd Otten. I'm a family physician uh, living in Michigan in the United States. And I graduated from school a little over 20 years ago and initially thought I wanted to be a trauma surgeon, uh, but it wasn't quite for me. Fortunately, I was a flight surgeon in the United States Navy, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's more of primary care. Um, And that obviously led to me finishing my residency in family medicine. Uh, Fast forward through being chief of staff, ACO medical director, all the normal hats that leaders tend to wear, uh, significant burnout in 2019. Uh, Fortunately, after that, I was blessed to open a new office with three brand new nurse practitioners, and it was magical. We called it the office utopia. Um, Despite the magic that we had there, um, there were some administrative decisions that were made that led to me really taking a stand, not only for myself, but taking a stand for patients and for my colleagues. So at the end of 2022, I, I, I stepped away from direct patient care which allowed me to finish writing, editing uh, Ripple of Change, which was published in May of this year. And since then, it's been a, a whirlwind of discussions and conversations. Really trying to inspire not just a ripple of change, but hopefully, hopefully more of a tsunami in the end. So that's, that's a little bit of my story and hopefully that's enough.
0: <laughs> that's wonderful, thank you. Um, the book that you wrote, you wrote a book with a patient? How unusual is that?
1: Absolutely, it, it and what a magical journey it really started uh, with myself writing a poem called "Medicine Is a World of Gray," which was about two years after going through burnout, and it, it's a pretty dark poem, I would say, um, but part of the catharsis. And then I, I got really inspired and said I was going to write, and, and the first chapter I wrote was called "Anatomy of Burnout," which kind of gives a raw um unfiltered look into what it's like to really struggle as a physician with all the pressures that that mount on you and, and how that affects not just yourself but the people around you in such a negative negative way. Um and one of my patients, Joshua Judy, my co-author, he was really struggling with his health. And about two months after I started the process of the book, I was literally running out of ideas for him on, on how to get him better. I knew the medicine that I had written for him devastated him. And what's ironic about that, it's the exact same drug that I still take for my post-concussive headaches that made them go away. So you talk about a completely divergent response. So I was looking for other ways to inspire him and try and get to a better place. And, and literally, I told him about the project and he he offered back, what can I do? And I said, just write. And from there, 18 months later, we, we published the book that we were really excited about.
0: I'll come back to the book in a second, but um, I'm actually really interested also in in your burnout story and and, and particularly that you managed to turn things around. I mean, what, what what happens and how did you how did you successfully get out of burnout to open this new practice?
1: Wow. Um, e- even just, you know, talking about it and thinking back to those times, it, it evokes a lot of emotions that raw, you know, pain that, that you feel. And it it's almost difficult to put into words how that all started. But I was, frankly, I was doing too much, like many of us do. I was, at the time, I was chief of staff. I was an ACO medical director. I was literally seeing about 6,000 visits a year, which as a family physician is a tremendous amount. But I was always trying to do more and trying to help as many people as I possibly could. And things were starting to pile up and and it was starting to adversely affect me with the flow issues in the office, the lack of respect, the lack of autonomy, the clerical burdens, the EMR, and I don't need to go through all that stuff, but it was starting to bubble up. And there was a moment where um, part of our um, citizenship or quality pay, if you will, was related to chart completion. And I had two open charts of which I could close neither of them. My medical assistant actually had to check a box and an administrative decision was made to withhold some of my pay as a result of that. And for me it wasn't the money, it was the principle of the whole thing. I things just unraveled after that. I resigned pretty much every leadership position I had of which some were compensated so clearly it wasn't about the about the money. It was about the principle and doing what's right. And I think all too often in our current healthcare system the driving factors aren't what they should be. And so that was my experience, and how it evolved and and Unfortunately, I was allowed to have some time off a sabbatical, if you will, able to reset, recalibrate things got better you know and and I was well enough to come back to work and, and it w- and it was good, but it still took another good two years after that to i to where I felt almost back to normal mm-hmm. um and a lot of that was how our office went and and the magic that we had there with with the kindness and the camaraderie and the laughter. What have you and, and and those things are often overlooked, I feel in healthcare, so um so yeah it, uh, the highs and the lows of, of being a physician, i suppose
0: so that the utopia that you talked about where where did that utopia come from, and how did it develop?
1: Well, it started, I suppose, with me being an army of one, and then uh I tossed my stone into the into the pond, if you will and and told my office manager what the vision was for the for our, um, establishment, and she was on board. And we decided that we were going to make the quadruple aim at the time, which we've since morphed to our quadruple aim, uh, a priority in the office. And a big part of that is provider wellness. And provider, in my opinion, means everybody: the medical assistants, the nurse practitioners, the front office staff, and. And the amazing part of that is is when you incorporate the wellness, the other three components of our quadruple aim flow naturally. Patient experience is better um, because people are happy. They want to be there. Work is a joy. You, the quality of care goes up. And the studies show this too, right? You know, when, when providers are struggling, they're you're not getting their best despite them wanting to give you that. And by allowing those three components to come into play, we were able to have discussions about cost containment and, and and such so really the key was we we made a concerted effort to prioritize the quadruple aim or as we say now our quadruple aim and that was the magic sauce and it took it took some effort it took some belief it took me mentioning it probably thousands of times <laughs> at the start um but but it worked and and it can be done so it, it's it's just i i want i hope and i, I pray that this endeavor that we've done can inspire and empower you know, everyone out there to play their part, to do their thing. Because the power of one is incredible. And if it becomes two, and you hit that S-curve of adoption, things can become magical. Um, but it has to start somewhere.
0: What, what is the quadruple aim?
1: The quadruple aim is patient experience, quality care, lower costs, and provider wellness. And we, Joshua and I, in the course of the the book, decided we wanted to elevate it to uh, connote a, a sense of ownership, if you will. That's why we put the hour in front of it, because we don't want it to just be my aim and Joshua's aim. We want everybody to take this and run with it. And really, if you think about it, it's, it's akin to the quintuple aim, which brings in the social determinants of health, um and equality and all those things so we really tried to simplify it so in 11 words we we came up with what we consider to be a roadmap for people to take and and run with and you know maybe it's just they're improving their office or but maybe they're a chief medical officer or maybe they're in um you know a, a political arena where they can make a difference and the more of us that take something like this and, and decide what, effort we can give or what component you know we can help improve lots of opportunity so hope uh, so again I it was a bit of a long-winded answer I suppose but uh, patient experience number one number two quality care number three lower costs and number four provider wellness that is our required aim.
0: and you used them um, the pond and the ripple analogy um, can you explain to me what you mean by that
1: Absolutely. When you think of a lake or, or a pond and it's it's peaceful and you just take that one tiny pebble and toss it in there, it's a magical thing to see those ripples spread out. And we decided, we were debating what analogy to use to capture momentum, right? And so we decided to go with the water theme um, in part because we feel like the ripples can not only excuse me the 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 pebble can not only create ripples but subsequently waves or maybe a hurricane or tsunami depending on what part of the world you're in i suppose of change and and that's how we came up with that and it frankly it was brilliant it was i give a lot of credit to uh, my co-author joshua and his wife um, because i was very much wanting to stick with uh, the quadruple aim component to the to the title and they they said well not everybody's going to know what that is and ultimately we we had the inspiration for the ripple of change
0: certainly it's a title that um, attracted me when i saw that um i guess sort of th- there's two things that are coming up for me in that context so so the first one would be would be the idea that that if all of us did something like that you know what what would happen um, but I guess also that, that perhaps, as you say, it, may, it might take just one pebble, the, the right pebble from the right person at the right time, and that might change the system. Um, I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on that so to be, Is you thinking that, that perhaps it just needs to be a one or two people that will change the system, or is this all of us that are going to change the system together?
1: I The latter, honestly. I think it's going to take a multitude of people. In the book, I describe an army of positive disruptors. What I've noticed in in having these conversations is there are many, many good and wonderful people out there wanting to improve healthcare and healthcare delivery and the experience for patients and, and how providers' day goes. The issue I'm seeing is that a lot of these efforts are And I use the word silo a lot, where they're isolated. They're only in their their small community. And I feel if we can consolidate and amplify those voices, it will be very difficult to ignore if, say, thousands of people are saying the same thing. But what if we had millions of people saying the same thing in the same direction? That's going to create a lot of disruption and and probably facilitate a lot of change. Uh, One of the groups that I'm working with actually is called Medicine Forward. And it's a grassroots physician organization looking to inspire and empower lots of change. And we're starting to see some traction with uh, Gabe Charbonneau has been the leader for four years and one of the co-founders. We're starting to see some traction where more and more physicians are getting interested in wanting to be a part of this movement and using our voices to really make change. So to answer your question, I think we need everyone to play their part. And it might be as simple as uh, how you interact with your doctor. Joshua, my co-author, when he had to transition because I wasn't seeing patients again, he established with his new provider. And at one point during the interaction, you know, in these 15, 20-minute, you know, racing sessions that we call an office visit, um, he stopped and asked the doctor how their day was. And the physician was so taken aback, they took their hands off their keyboard and looked up and said, I've never had anybody ask me that before. And if nothing else, it probably bought them another five minutes of, of an interaction, I suppose. But the reality is a bond was created there. And and I imagine they have a wonderful working relationship now. And that's just one tiny thing. Right. Um, so I envision millions of us hopefully taking up our, um, you know, sword or whatever you want to use and, and, and making a difference.
0: I guess healthcare is full of altruistic, good-natured people. So why why aren't we all doing that already?
1: I think a lot of that has to do with part of the training, particularly for physicians. We're taught to be self-reliant. We're taught to be autonomous, uh, individual, competent thinkers. I think that's a component of it. So I think there's some of the historical legacy training aspects that have contributed to this problem. And I feel like that's been taken advantage of by other entities just piling on and piling on and piling on. And physicians will just work harder and work harder and work harder. And that's all well and good until it isn't. And so I think that's been a big part of it. Um, And then you factor in some of the, the barriers related to electronic medical records and communication and the time crunches that exist, you know a good percentage of physicians are doing things at home with pajama time, spending two, three, four hours charting. The last thing they want to do is add more time to their day. And and unfortunately, as a result of that, things get cut off. And so despite the altruism, people are at their capacity for work. And there's also this component of learned helplessness where they feel like, they don't have any more energy to give and the system is what it is and they're just trying to survive and i think that's a big part of what we want hope to unwind uh, with this endeavor
0: so how, how are you going to unwind that that apathy or learned helplessness or that um, idea that, that there's no point because nothing changes So, how are you going to change that or how can we change that
1: you know, one of the things that we're going to do, uh, despite the the ideas in the book that we're given, is uh, we also are going to have a podcast, which is going to be called The Ripple of Change, Searching for Our Quadruple Aim. And what we are going to do in the context of our podcast is to highlight and celebrate and really showcase people that are doing positive things. So that, you know, whether, like I said, whether it's at your individual level or the hospital level, you can take some of these little nuggets and make your world better. And and over time, as we start to see some consolidation of this, I, I believe change can and will happen. Because if it doesn't, this system, frankly, is probably going to implode in many places. And so that, you know, if I had to give you one thing that I would say is the overarching theme, it's obviously what, what we call our quadruple aim. But I think the reality is Everyone can play their part, whether it's via time, whether it's their talent, or, or maybe it's with their treasure, right? You know, maybe somebody doesn't have the capacity for some of these endeavors, but they can donate to um, an organization that is wanting to make change to get themselves self sufficient or what have you. So, um, yeah, many, they're not one. I wish there was a magic switch we could flip or a, you know, plug and play. Um, but unfortunately, I think it's going to take the work of many, many of us.
0: So we we all have different skills and different talents and it doesn't really matter what we're doing as individuals the 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 point is that we're doing something that contributes to us changing healthcare
1: 100% and and I think we're at a point where many people are are afraid to speak up uh for example you know when I stepped away from my role as a family physician a lot of my colleagues were cheering me on, but in in kind of silence because they didn't want to speak up against the the C suite or the executive suite uh, pushing back on some of the things that were coming down the pipeline. I, I didn't have that fear, and I felt it was important that I speak up and and advocate for them. Um, and I think in the end, it, it, the right thing has happened, and we need to we need to turn that around where people, when something isn't right, are able to speak up find somebody they can advocate for them or find an ally or feel comfortable um, so so that we're not living in this, this culture of fear that exists all too often.
0: Mm-hmm. Where did you get the strength to speak up?
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Um, you know, I, probably many reasons. Um, having gone through burnout, I had vowed I wasn't going to go through it again. And when I was told that my office was going to be moved in a very short period of time with very little notice to myself, and I went home and my my wife started crying, I said, That's it. I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm not gonna go down this road again. I don't I don't know what's gonna happen next year, but we're gonna be fine. That was a very powerful moment. And for me to go into the office and resign my career, you know, after 20 years to take a stand, that's That's not an insignificant thing. I went to school for just like you for over a decade to do what I do. And um, so that was a big piece of it. But the other part of it was just, you know, I've, I've known three of my colleagues that have committed suicide in my career. And that has to stop. We can't have the system beating people down to the point where they want to take their own life. Uh, and enough is enough. And, and you think about all the, the misdiagnoses and delays in care and deaths as a result of the dysfunctional system that we exist in. So I suppose there were several tears to my lack of fear associated with this. Um, and it, there was a piece of straw that broke the camel's back. And I'm like, you know what? Now's the time. And so I'm not going to shut up till I feel like things are getting better.
0: <laughs> the thing that I find astonishing is that there's a shortage of us. Yeah. So, so you know, in any normal market economy, we should be the ones that should be calling all the shots and be in charge. And yet somehow we've all ended up on the receiving end of something that is bad for us and is also bad for patients, as you've outlined, because the two things do go together. Um, and I never really quite understand how we find ourselves in that position.
1: Well, I think uh, uh, I've heard this phrase frequently where people, uh, I hear profits over people. And when there's this myopic view on the, the dollar sign or or whatever the denomination is, it it just allows for really poor decisions to be made. And what I find fascinating about that is if we went the other way and really focused on where things should be, which is on patient experience and appropriate costs and, and reasonable, you know, margins and all these other things, you would have patients for life. You know, if a, if a patient came into the hospital and they had a wonderful experience and were, gave a reasonable bill um, and had a good outcome, they would stay with you forever. But that's not what happens when, you, when, when the priorities on the, on the profits. it's it's just too bad it needs to be turned around
0: so i guess the priority is it's a short-term priority rather than a long-term priority because in that model in the long term that would be more profitable for the business it's just that presumably whoever's in charge today is only interested in what profit is going to be available you know, at the end of the financial year or in UK where, you know, it's perhaps not about profit, but people be interested in this month's performance, this month's waiting times, this month's target meeting, rather than what what's going to happen in 10, 20 years time.
1: Absolutely. And I actually, one of the chapters in the book is called ROI for a health system, where um, that's a chapter I wrote and I offer 10 really low cost or no cost challenges that can be they're easy to implement. For example, one is kindness and kudos. Being kind and offering, you know, congratulations or kudos to somebody doesn't cost anything. And the return on that can be tremendous in terms of your the productivity or getting a multiplying effect with your staff as opposed to a diminishing return. Um. And some of those endeavors are, are um, low cost, depending on how you perceive it. For example, a wellness officer for a health system. I make the case in the book that a cost of a, if you could retain one physician over the course of a five year period, that wellness officer's uh, cost will have paid for itself because it costs, you know, about half a million to a million dollars, depending on the context, to recruit uh, a physician into a system. That's a lot of money. Um, so, yeah, some of these endeavours and what's the ROI for smiling and thanking people, I, I, you know, it's priceless.
0: Um, I'm interested in your tips um, for um, doctors. Um, I guess sort of maybe I'll start with, you know, let, let's pick sort of a medical director, somebody in a very senior leadership role. What, what would be your top tip to that kind of person from you?
1: I think my top tip would be to at least take a look in the mirror and make sure that you're doing okay and make sure that your mindset's where it should be and you're not struggling with burnout because I think if you are, it's going to be very difficult to take some of these other initiatives and truly get the traction you want. So I, I would I would take a look you know, at yourself first and, and perhaps some coaching is required or cutting back on some responsibilities, that kind of thing. That's what I would suggest for a medical director that introspective look
0: what about for a clinician that's that's a bit downtrodden that's a bit burnt out that's um a bit learned helplessness type what what would be your tips for somebody like that you know why how 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 can they turn that around and be one of the ripples of change
1: i think i would in that in that particular instance i would encourage them to learn to say no Learn to say no, despite what is being told or being perceived, you are not replaceable. You are important. You are unique. You have a ton of training and they can't just grab another one of you and put it in your spot. And so if things are getting frustrating, you got to have the, the courage to say, I'm not going to do that. That's not in my best interest. It's not in the patient's best interests and perhaps cut back on some things. Maybe it's shorten your day, maybe allow for some administrative time but the power of no is is an undervalued tool.
0: Yeah, I I really like that and for for me, you know, we we're part of the problem because we keep saying yes. Um and the the more that we say yes, the more the more the system exists that tries to extract more and more um from us and and that's not in our interest nor in patient's interest. Yeah, as you as you've as you've pointed out the you know tired burnt out doctors they they're not good doctors. So, yeah, so I like that. Um, what about maybe somebody who's very early um, in their career, you know, somebody, somebody who's just starting out and they're looking at these hierarchies around them thinking, you know, what, what power do I have to make a difference? What, what would be your tips for that kind of a doctor?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a, I think the first thing I would say is, is pick a field of medicine, assuming we're talking about a medical student or, or what have you, that you truly enjoy. Don't chase financial reward. Do something because you love it. Um, That would be my number one tip. And then I I think the other big thing is balance. Learn balance early on. Learn to care for yourself. Learn to say no. Um, And that will pay itself over and over again in terms of return on investment.
0: That's great. And then my final question, maybe for anybody out there, What are your top tips for changing healthcare?
1: It's simple. Pick a pebble, find a pond and throw it in. And maybe for some of you, it's not just a pebble, it's a rock or perhaps even a boulder. Um, I've probably thrown a few boulders uh, in my time, but if we all do something, things can and hopefully will get better.
0: That's great. Thank you very much, Todd.